So we're going to start a new series today. Would you pray with me to, to begin this? Let's do that. Heavenly Father, you are the greatest thing in the universe. There's nothing like the living God who created all things, who sustains all things, for whom all things exist. And when we come here and gather here, there's a huge part of it that is us fellowshipping and loving each other, caring for each other. There's a huge part of it that is us figuring out how we can serve the community outside these doors. But all of it has something to do with you. And the largest part of it, Father, is us seeing you for who you really are and seeing what you've called us into as your people. So I pray right now, Father, that you would keep my lips from saying anything that is in error and that you would open all of our hearts, my heart included, Father, to receive what you have for us today, Father. We need to hear your voice. We don't need to hear from a man. We don't need to hear from anything else. We need to hear you come and communicate through your word to our hearts so that we see something about our God that we did not see before. We see something about his plan for our lives in this place where we live that we did not see before. So I'm pleading with you, Father, for you to do that. In the name of Christ Jesus, amen. So today we are beginning a, a new series. Um, we're going to take a little bit of a break from Colossians. The series is called For King and Kingdom. And really what this is, is as we enter summer, I wanted to engage a burden that's been on my heart. I know it's been on a lot of hearts here. Um, and in large part, it is the very reason that Risen Hope exists. And that burden is that, that my life and the lives that are represented here and the lives that aren't here today and, and really everyone here that, that calls themselves part of this family would make a difference in the communities that we live in for the glory of Christ. That these neighborhoods filled with people outside these doors, people who are made in the image of the living God, that they would know Christ, that they would know the joy found only in Him, and that we would meet their needs, their physical needs and their spiritual needs. And that's my passion for this church. And really, summer, for, for people who live in the Pacific Northwest, particularly Seattle, the greater Seattle area, this is our opportunity to do this. We have a multitude of opportunities to that end. And, and God has graciously and sovereignly placed each of us next to people who need to know about him. It's not an accident that the friends that you have, the people that you work with, the people that you live next to are there. That is not an accident. God put them there for you to love them. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. What it means to love where we live, which is one of our pillars. So if you have your Bibles, please open them and turn to John 17, 14. We're going to open with this text in John 17, and then we're going to move over to Luke 12. So in this passage, John 17, it's called the High Priestly Prayer. Jesus is praying to his Father before he goes to the cross. It is a prayer for every single believer, anyone who puts their trust in Christ Jesus. So I want you to feel that for a second. Jesus Christ the Son of the living God prayed for you personally. 
He thought of you. He had a desire for you to accomplish something in the world. And then he went to his father to see it happen. This is what he said. I have given them your word. He's talking to his father on our behalf. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. And then he says, I do not ask for these only, his disciples who are right next to him, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Why is that, Jesus? So that the world may know that you sent me and that you loved them even as you loved me. So in this prayer, this passage, Jesus is sanctifying himself. He is consecrating himself, which means he is committing himself completely to the purposes of God. This is something he's been doing since his birth. Giving himself over to the purposes of God, never committing a sin, never dishonoring God, doing everything for God's glory. And he did all of that up to this prayer that we might be sanctified that we might be purified, made holy. Our holiness is a gift from Jesus Christ. And it says that it accomplishes a purpose in verse 22, that they may be one, that the people of God, all he redeems, might be one, even as the Father and Jesus are one, that we would all be united in Christ Jesus, as we've been talking about in the book of Colossians. But this isn't the goal. This isn't the final goal. This is simply a means to accomplish something else. Look at verse 21. Jesus says he's doing this, he's praying this prayer so that the world may believe that you, Father, have sent me. Jesus is saying that the church is God's instrument, God's means for compelling the world that there is a God and he is Father, and he has sent his Son, and his Son is none other than Jesus Christ. And if you look, verse 23 shows that Jesus is very, very aggressive about this desire, this goal, because he repeats it again. He says, unite my people so that the world may know that you have sent me, and that you loved them, my people, even as much as you loved me. Now that's That is amazing. Think about what he's saying here. That God loves us like he loves Jesus. That's huge. That is massive. Jesus Christ 
is perfect in every conceivable way. He has zero defects, never done anything wrong in his life. He is worthy to be loved by God because he is infinitely and eminently lovely. God should love Jesus, but we are not lovely. We fail every single day. We can't even for one second, love God the way that we are called to as his image bearers, to love him with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our strength, all of our soul. We can't even do that for a second because we have so many competing loves in our lives. But with Jesus, every single second of his life, he loved his father like that, perfectly. His love and his adoration for his father was a never-ending, unbroken chain of commitment and passion. Did not break for even a second. And though we are unworthy of God's love, though we are on the opposite end of the spectrum, it says here that because of what's going to happen on the cross, because of what Jesus is going to accomplish, that God loves us just like he loves Jesus. That alone... I could stop here. We could go home. You could think about that for the whole week, and that would be sufficient. Um, But there's more to see. Um, Even though that's huge on on its own, that is there so that there's a purpose accomplished in the world. God's not content just to show his love to us. He wants to do something else to invite people in to display something for the world. And it says here that when his love for us is seen, when his radical love for us, ridiculous love for us, is shown in the world, the world comes to realize something profound. The world comes to realize that Jesus Christ was sent by God, that this father sent his son, and that in his son, this powerful love is displayed, which meets us at our greatest point of need. And earlier in this passage, Jesus says, that this is the reason we're in the world. This is the reason he sent us in the world. We remain in the world because of this. So if you've ever wondered, why is it that we're here? What is my ultimate purpose in this world? Why did God keep me here? The answer is in this text. It's in John 17. We are here, all of us, so that the world may know. They might know him. Jesus is saying that every single person he saves, he sends. Every single person he redeems, he sends. We are, all of us, witnesses according to this text. Now, let me ask a question. And I'm asking this question of me, not just you. How are we doing on this front? How am I doing on this front? How are you doing? Are we witnessing? Are we engaging God's people graciously, the people he's placed around us? And I want to caution here, the last thing I want to do with anything I say over the next 30 minutes is for you to feel condemnation or think that this is some sort of guilt trip. This is not that. Please do not hear that. That's not the purpose of today. I've spent literally weeks praying for this specific series because I know that some of the things that we're going to engage in the scriptures will cut deep. They cut me deep. 
and God willing, they will all of us appropriately feel um, the weight that's involved in this, in this text and in the other passages we're going to read. If you've encountered God's grace, if you've encountered his love in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are called. I am called to be a witness of this gospel for those who need to hear it. And when I say witnessing, I mean loving the world in word and deed. Word and deed. So this is proclaiming the gospel with, our, with actual words, and this is displaying the gospel by serving people who need us desperately. So that's the question that I want to hang over everything we, we have today, everything we talk about today. Are we doing this? Is this something that we're doing regularly in our lives, or is this something that needs to change? So with that, please turn to Luke 12. Luke 12, verse 13, and this is where we're going to spend most of our time together today. Let me get a water. Luke 12, 13. So Jesus did not just pray before the cross for us to be witnesses. He literally taught it everywhere in his ministry. He taught also not only that we should be witnesses, but he taught that the greatest threat to us witnessing the beauty of Jesus Christ, the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the greatest threat to that isn't actually like the devil, Satan. It isn't a lack of ability or power because he's promised to give his people that thing. It isn't that the gospel isn't good enough. This is the greatest news in the world. There is nothing like this news that Christ redeems sinners. The greatest threat to us witnessing is ourselves. It's our flesh and our own desires. It's a preoccupation with anything, anything but God and his purposes, the king and his kingdom. And in America, and really all of the West, this threat is lethal and deadly. And the reason why is because America is a Disneyland of distractions that keep us from feeling the things that we need to feel the most, from seeing the suffering that we need to see and go out and embrace. It is a Disneyland of distractions. Everything in our culture, everything in our culture is tailor-made to keep us and to focused on things that don't matter in this world instead of focusing on what actually matters. So I want us to see Jesus engage this poisonous culture in his own time and country. And I'm praying for, for me and for you that, that God would move powerfully there and that he wouldn't just show us this truth. We can see this truth, but that he would take that truth, infiltrate our hearts, remove every barrier to our embracing it, and subdue all resistance in us for this and let it hit, sink home. Everyone Jesus saves, he sends. Everyone Luke 12, 13. So, someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And then he said to them, Take 
care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And then he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared. Whose will they be? Then Jesus says, So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So a man comes to Jesus and he asks him to use his authority as a local rabbi, a teacher, <laughs> to convince his brother to share the inheritance with me. This is a reasonable question, probably not to bring to the Son of God, but it is a reasonable question. I want part of the inheritance. Jesus uses this opportunity to warn all the people around him. And the warning is that we need to guard against covetousness, the love of stuff. In Colossians, which we'll be seeing in a, in a few weeks, and in other parts of the Bible, covetousness is loving anything in creation over and above the Creator. It's called idolatry. And Jesus says, you need to guard against this. There's nothing more important right now in this person's life than to guard against covetousness. Guard against it at all costs. Do not allow a single drop of it to enter into your bloodstream. Now, why is this? He says, because one's life does not consist of possessions. One's life does not consist of the things you own, your stuff. Your life and the significance of your life has nothing to do with what you own. Your value and your joy cannot be connected to these things, Jesus is saying. It cannot be connected to comfort. It cannot be connected to any pleasure you can derive from money or stuff. One's life does not consist of what you physically possess in this world. And to show this, Jesus tells a parable, as he often does. He says, a rich man has a field, and he is blessed with an extraordinary harvest. And then he considers and processes, what will I do with this blessing? And I use that word blessing carefully because that's what this is. The emphasis of this is not in how he got the money, how he got the stuff. The emphasis in, is how, how, he does, how does he respond to what he gets. And so he arrives at the decision, I'm going to tear down my barns and I'm going to build larger ones so that I can store this massive harvest that I just got. And by doing that, I can enjoy years of security, of plenty, of comfort. I can relax. I can eat, drink, be merry. That's my goal. That's what this rich man is saying. His eyes are locked 
onto his life in the immediate moment, and he's asking, what can I do to maximize my joy right now? What can I do in the things that I own to maximize my ease, my comfort in this world? And his solution is that I'm going to acquire things that can guarantee it. I'm going to protect myself and insulate myself from everything outside and all the suffering that's going on outside of me. I'm going to protect myself and I'm going to relax. That's his goal. And God answers this man. And what does he say? Fool. He says fool. God calls this man a fool. Let me tell you right now, please make this your life goal. That God would never call you that. What a horrible thing to befall a person for the one who made them, the one for whom they were made, looks at the fullness of this man's existence and the only word, the first word that comes to his mind is, that's a fool. That is a fool. This is heartbreaking. May it never happen to us. But then God says why he's a fool. This night, your soul is required of you and all the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? You sought to maximize your comfort in this life. You sought to, to, to get your joy protected in the things that you have and now you're going to die and everything dear to you, everything that you've loved, everything that you've adored in this life will become somebody else's property. It will be owned by someone else. Everything you had did not matter ultimately in the end. And Jesus' summary statement of this parable is, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now, before we start to argue, before I start to raise my arguments against this, because this is heavy stuff, Jesus, and say, well, maybe he's talking about just rich people who hoard their money and keep it only for themselves. Maybe he's talking about the Scrooge McDuck. You guys know that reference? Scrooge McDuck people that just take their money and they just hoard their money and they keep it for themselves. We're not those people, right? So we don't have to, I don't have a tower filled with money. So I don't have to worry about this parable. This parable's not for me. Well, let me say first off, globally, statistic, Americans own, as of a few years ago, 41.6% of the world's wealth. 41.6% is owned by Americans. China is the second, 10.5%. This is an analysis just a few years ago. This is not intended to be a guilt trip on being an American. There's nothing wrong with being an American. This is not a guilt trip for having Money, this is not at all. But this is to say, globally speaking, we are in the same category of people as this person. We are wealthy, globally speaking. Secondly, the treasure here is not money. The treasure here is not an accumulation of money for accumulation's sake. The treasure here in this parable is relaxation, eating and drinking and being merry while ignoring the world outside when there are people who are suffering. That's what the treasure is here. It's not about hoarding. It's about looking at your life right now despite the realities of lostness 
and pain in the world around us and saying, I'm going to shore up my own life and the rest of the world can go to hell. That's what's going to happen. And Jesus refers to this as storing up treasure for yourself and not being rich toward God, not dealing with your stuff in a way that honors God. And I'm not just talking about how we speak. We can say anything we want, and we, I do say anything I want, and that doesn't reflect necessarily how we live our lives. Do we embrace, when we can, sacrifice in order to help others, in order to love others? Are we rich toward God? And the thing about this in Jesus' ministry is it's not just one isolated parable. It's not just one event. This is what he's saying in this text, the perpetual anthem of discipleship. If you want to follow Christ Jesus, you are forsaking the things of this world. And he spent most of his time telling people, listen, you need to count the cost. You want to get on this train? You need to count the cost. So in the Gospel of Luke, here's two passages I'm going to use as an example. Luke 9. And Jesus said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of his Father and the holy angels. Or Luke 14. Now great crowds accompanied him, accompanied Jesus, and he turned to the great crowds and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, mother, wife, and children, and brothers, and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And then he gives two analogies. He says, for which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who will see it will begin to mock him and say that this man began to build what he was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him or with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and he will ask for terms of peace then Jesus turns to them and says, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. What this tells us about Christianity is that Christianity is not simply a set of propositions about how the world operates, about what you believe, about God, about the world. It's not a religious system where you do the right thing whenever, you're, whenever it's convenient. Christianity, at its core, fundamentally, is looking at Christ Jesus and then looking at the rest of the world and saying, he's worth it. I would be willing to give up all of that for him. That's Christianity at the heart. He is worth giving up everything for, my comfort, my freedom, my reputation, even my life. The heart of Christianity is loving 
seeing him for who he is and loving Jesus more than anything in this life. It is not a get out of hell free card that you get when you accept Jesus into your heart. That's not Christianity. Christianity, Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. And so Christianity in this book is losing your life in order to gain it. That's what saving faith looks like. Faith that receives Christ as better than everything else this world offers. Which is why Jesus can say, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Receiving Christ is recognizing him as the greatest of all treasures. There's nothing like him. There's nothing like Jesus. Now, some points of clarification. First, this does not mean that renouncing things is how you earn your right standing with God. You do not earn anything in Christianity. Our gospel is a gospel of grace. Jesus is saying here that the nature of following him, the kind of following him at its core is saying, I don't give a rip about what the world offers me. I love Jesus more than anything else. He is enough for me. That's the kind of faith that releases the hold on this world and clings to Christ alone in joy. And so it's not a pathway. Renouncing things is not a pathway or a way that you can earn this. It is the kind, the, the nature of it. Secondly, asceticism does not equal Christianity. Asceticism does not equal Christianity. And we'll see that in a few weeks in Colossians. Simply denying yourself things that God has given us in the world as gifts does not equal Christianity. This isn't about removing things for removing things' sake. Denying things like food, things that you need in this life, isn't the problem. It's not the things themselves. It's our heart's addiction to them. And Jesus is going to make that very clear as he continues in Luke 12, verse 22. Listen to this. Jesus says in verse 22, And he said to his disciples after giving this parable, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you eat, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more value are you than the birds? And which of you being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do such a small thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? And then he says, consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass which is thrown into the oven, well, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. Seek his kingdom. Jesus says, you are worried about food and clothing. God knows that you need these things. He's not dumb. God is not dumb. When we covet something, we are saying to God, you don't know what you're doing. What I have is not sufficient. 
You do not know what you're doing. <laughs> and he's not dumb. Um, he's ultimately the one that provides this. And if God takes care of the ravens and the lilies, what in the world would cause people to think, people he loves just as much as his own son, what in the world would cause them to think that he won't take care of them? He won't meet their needs. Now, taking care of them may not mean giving them everything they want immediately. Sometimes not having specific things in our lives that we want is what we need. But what his point is this, God is in control. Stop worrying like the rest of the world, the nations, about things that don't matter eternally. Instead, set your posture of life to one end. Seek the kingdom. Live for king and kingdom every single moment of your life putting off the desire to embrace temporary comforts and always asking this question, how in my life right now, how can I make God look great? How can I make him look great in my context right now? How can I make it look like my treasure is not in this world? It isn't in this world. My treasure is in God, that king and his eternal kingdom. That's what Jesus is saying here. That's the purpose of that parable. We don't give up things in this life for the sake of giving up things. That's ridiculous. And it's actually another form of idolatry. We do not do that. We give up things for the kingdom. That's what it means to be rich toward God. And it isn't just stuff. It isn't just physical possessions. It isn't just money. This is our job. This is what we saw just a few minutes ago in Luke 14. Our family our entire life. It is everything. None of it can take the place of Christ Jesus. We renounce everything, he says, for, for the sake of king and kingdom. So our question again is this. This is my question for my own heart, even as preparing this. Is this a reflection, an accurate reflection of my life right now? Does it reflect your current life, how you live at work, how you live at home, does this show an accurate assessment of the economy of my affections? What I love, what I desire in this life. Counting everything lost for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus and showing him in this world. So, if I can be real just a second, this is tough. This is difficult. This is not a trivial request. It's massive. It's huge. And if you don't think it's huge based on the stuff that I said this morning, then I'm not doing a good job communicating it. This is huge. And we should ask Jesus, the response of our heart, seeing the kind of loss here, is Jesus, this is a lot of potential things to lose in our life, to be willing to lose in order to seek your, your kingdom. You're saying that my job is worth losing for the sake of the gospel. You're saying that my family is worth losing for the sake of the gospel. You're saying that my own life is worth losing for the sake of the gospel. That is a heavy, heavy tax. And this is scary because we as Americans have a lot of stuff in our life that we love. Some of it is good. Our jobs are good. Our families are good. Our lives are good. We don't want to lose those things. And if this is what it means to follow Jesus... Why would I want a Savior like this? Why would I desire a Savior who's just going to take these things that, I, that I'm attached to, that I love, 
What's good about this good news? Well, Jesus will answer those questions in verse 32 of this same text. He says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with treasure in, hev- in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Jesus says, it's a lot of loss. It is a lot of loss for you to look at your life on this grid. What can I do to glorify God every single moment in my, the things that I own, the things that I enjoy? Jesus says, fear not. Fear not, little flock. It's a lot to lose. Absolutely, to follow Christ is to renounce everything. If I spend my free time serving a community that needs me, I'm going to miss out on a thousand things that I would rather do. If I talk about Jesus in my workplace, I could be fired and let go. If I talk about him with my friends who don't know him, I could be humiliated, embarrassed, or worse, I could lose a friend that I really care for and love. If I invite people over into my home to have dinner who don't know Jesus so that I can show them the love of Christ in word and deed, it's going to cost me time, money, energy. If I stop on the side of the street to help someone who's homeless or poor or who's having a rough go of it, it's going to cost me. It's going to cost me doing something else. And if I move to the front lines of the mission field, it could cost me my life. And Jesus looks at that loss and says, fear not, little flock. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of this loss at all. Why, Jesus? Because it's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. The kingdom. Stop seeking to find your ultimate joy and ultimate comfort in this temporary world and spend your life being poured out by the living God for an eternal kingdom. This doesn't mean abandon your family to pursue your dreams. This doesn't mean never have fun in life, never enjoy recreation, no more vacations. That's not what this means at all. Hear me, this is not a mandate not to rest or enjoy God's gifts. That would be a sin to do that. So if you're hearing that, you're hearing me wrong. The entire purpose of this parable is to change our posture of living, to change our posture of living. Are you in your life seeking the things of this world or are you storing up for yourself treasure in heaven by seeking the kingdom of God, by spreading the gospel and sacrificially serving people who need you? Jesus is saying, Give yourself to this end. This is why you are here. Do not waste your life pursuing the things of this world. Seek the kingdom. Seek the kingdom. That's priority number one. Nothing else matters eternally. And then he says, this is not loss. This is not loss by any stretch of the imagination. Listen to what he says. It is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. I say this all the time, and I need to believe it. We all need to believe it. Jesus is fighting for our joy. Everything in this book is a battle for a higher joy than we are willing to give ourselves. 
He is fighting ferociously for it, more than we've ever fought for our joy, because he's refusing to let you settle for something temporary and hollow in this life, so that you'd have true happiness. You'd have something that would never be taken from you. Not decay, not thieves, not death. Nothing can take this from you. That's the promise of this text. Every sacrifice in Christianity, every single drop of sacrifice in Christianity is, a gr- is a grounded in the reality that joy in God is far better. You will lose nothing in this life that you will not gain a thousandfold in being in his presence. Joy in God is far better. Every single sacrifice. There is never a sacrifice in Scripture, ultimately, because in the end, we get God. We get God. Getting God is the diametric opposite of the word sacrifice the fullness of who he is. And Jesus says, where your treasure is in this life, that's where your heart's going to be. Your heart will be there, which is him pleading with these people and with us 2,000 years later, stop pursuing futile and temporary treasures in this world that will always run out, but rather spend our time, our money, our energy, our summer living in a radical, sacrificial way in seeking the kingdom being rich toward God. And the reason we can do this is because the kingdom is already ours. He's going to give us the kingdom. The kingdom is ours. How can God give us a kingdom? Given all that we talked about today and who we are, how can God give us a kingdom? Sinners like me and you, people who I will leave here and today before the sun sets will sin. It's going to happen. In my nature, I'm going to dishonor God, which is a tragedy because of how glorious and wonderful he really is. How can Jesus make this ridiculous promise to me? You're going to get the kingdom one day. My dad is going to give you the kingdom. How can he make that promise? And you know the answer already. The cross of Jesus Christ is how he can make that promise. Jesus purchased the entirety of the eternal kingdom by his own blood. He ransomed us from our sin, from the penalty we deserved, and he paved a way for us to have this promise. And now he's telling us, in this life, seek the kingdom. Seek the kingdom. Remember John 17, remember what Jesus says to the Father, what he prays to the Father? He says, as you, Father, sent me into the world, I send you them. I'm sending them. So how did God send Jesus into the world? How did the Father send Jesus into the world? 2 Corinthians 8, 9 tells us, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Jesus didn't purchase the kingdom for us with his own blood. Just do that. He did that. He didn't just do that. He modeled for us how we should seek it by dying on the cross. By dying on the cross. Think about this. Though he was infinitely rich, though he had everything, he became poor for our sake so that in his poverty we might get the kingdom. We need to dwell on that. He is inviting us into something that is not foreign to him. 
he knows what it's like to lose everything intimately because in the cross, he lost more than anything we could ever lose in this life. And he did that so he could ransom us from the pursuit of temporary joy and that we might pursue eternal joy by seeking his kingdom. So here's the deal. Summer is almost here. In fact, if the sun comes out again, we'll feel a little bit more of it soon. Summer is almost here. We have outside these doors great need. Great need. In Kingsgate, Kirkland, the greater Seattle area, great need. And across the world, next four weeks, we're going to spend time seeing what our response, or next, this week and next three weeks, see what our response should be to this world. And I'm pleading with God. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm pleading with God that as a church, we would not waste this summer. As a group of believers individually and as a body of believers, that risen hope would not fall into the rut of subsistence and indulgence, and which is the tragedy of Western Christianity, this self-centered, insular irrelevance, and that we would be used powerfully by God to meet the needs of people who are just on the other side of those doors. Through word, telling them about Jesus Christ, which is the thing they need most, and serving their physical needs. So I'm asking you, do everything you can, everything you can in the next few months to be used by God to this end. And pray, 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 pray that God would direct you and that you would be obedient. And spend time thinking of ways, strategically, creatively, that you can meet the needs of others who are around you, whether they're at your job or whether they're in your neighborhood, on your cul-de-sac. Pray for the time and the energy. Yes, pray for that to serve, but also pray that your heart would feel an overwhelming compassion for the fact that these people don't know him. They don't know him, and when they look at our lives, they should say, I want that. I want that. I want whatever that person has. What do you know about reality that I don't know? And pray for boldness to proclaim. This is the hardest one. I know it is. I know it is. I know it is. Pray that God, at the opening of your mouth, the Holy Spirit would come and give you the boldness to say what people need to hear that Jesus Christ loves them, and after they put their faith in him, he will take them for his own. You don't have to go far to see need. You do not have to go far to see need. It's on your streets, at your job, it's everywhere. Think about this this week. Though he was rich, infinitely rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Therefore, risen hope, do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after those things. And your Father knows that you need them. But instead, seek His kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Let's pray. Father God, I can talk about this, and I can ask for you to come but it is for no purpose at all if your Holy Spirit doesn't powerfully move in our hearts to convict us of the areas that we need to be obedient in, to lay bare our own desires and passions that have kept us from 
being used by you, Father, powerfully in the lives of people who are desperate to hear about Jesus Christ. And people who need to be served and loved, Father. So my prayer right now, Lord, isn't that this would just be people talking um, or people, me communicating to my friends, but that you would move powerfully, Father, in our hearts, in the deepest parts of our being, Father, so that we are compelled and driven to this end, that we join Jesus in his pursuit to rescue people from Kingsgate and from Seattle and from the entire world, Father. There is so much brokenness and pain. There is a sea of brokenness and pain outside this door. Help us to see this world through the holes in Christ Jesus' hand. He has a people out there, many people, and we are called to go after them, to love them, to give our lives to that end. May we feel the weight of that, and may you give us the strength and the boldness and the courage and the grace we need to accomplish those purposes. In the name of Christ Jesus, amen.